page 23, issue 5, suicide. Life in a fallen world is difficult. As a result, it's not uncommon for people to descend into despair, sometimes leading to suicide. It's especially true for unbelievers. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that unbelievers, quote, grieve because they have no hope. Now, believers grieve as well, as we all know, if we've lost a loved one. But that passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, actually says this fully, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. So it is not that we don't grieve, but we grieve differently. We grieve at the detachment now, having lost the person and the familiarity and the camaraderie and the love and the, and the help, mutual help uh, that we were give, able to give to one another and all the good times and all of that. Uh, you're going to grieve over that. All of us are. But we grieve differently. We do not grieve as unbelievers do, who, if the unbeliever is honest, which most unbelievers are not, otherwise they'd be believers. But if they're honest about that, they really have no reason for hope. Well, what is hope? Hope, in the Bible, is a confident expectation of the future. A confident expectation of the future. If you're an unbeliever... On what basis are you confident? In what do you place that confidence about the future for you and for those you have lost? And yet every funeral you go to, the person is in heaven, right? Every funeral you go to, the person is in heaven. And that, according to the Bible, is not true. Every person who passes from this life does not go to heaven. Unbelievers do not go to heaven. And it's a, it's a sad, a, an unbelievably sad reality that someone would leave this life without Christ, but that grieving, if the person is honest, is based upon not a confident expectation because there is no basis for that confidence that we have in the assurance of Scripture and the Christ of Scripture. And so especially, we say, for unbelievers, despair can lead to suicide. But the third line there, yet even believers in their own battle with sin, both internal and external battle with sin, can allow themselves to fall into despair. Now notice the phrase there, allow themselves, because that's what believers do. If you're a believer and you are in despair, make no mistake, we allow ourselves to do that. And if we allow ourselves to do that, well, then conversely, we can, we can avoid allowing ourselves to do that. Now, how do we avoid allowing ourselves to do that? Some of you have heard me say, I did a series a couple summers ago, I think it was. It's on our website if you want to listen to it, but it was called... Um, um, I forgot what it was called. It was called something about your mind. Mind games. That's what it's called. Mind games. And in the mind game series, I made the case that what we have to practice is the discipline of 
preaching to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. You all remember that? Some of you remember that? We have to learn to internally, in your mind games, speak to yourself rather than listen to yourself. Now, you all know what I mean. The truth is our, our minds are amazing machines. They're more than machines. There is the machine of the gray matter, but there's also the spirit that makes people unique from animals, and the combination of the spirit and the gray matter is what the Bible refers to as the mind. It is not just the the brain. The mind is the brain and the spirit interacting. So how we think is a spiritual issue. And how we think internally and how we speak to ourselves internally constantly, as all of us do. We can easily listen to ourselves... And listen to ourselves as false counselors. Telling ourselves what a loser we are. I can never do, I never do anything right. Well, you may not be a loser, you're a liar, if that helps. Because that's a big fat lie, right? You never did anything right in your whole life? That's not true of anybody here. But we talk that nonsense, don't we? And if we don't say it, we think it. And we listen to ourselves rather than speak to or preach to ourselves truth from Scripture. So I tried to hammer home in that series, and I encourage you to listen to it if you, or re-listen to it if you need to. The notion that it, is, it cannot be overestimated, the importance of being immersed in truth and confronting ourselves and rehearsing in our own minds truth about who we are, about who God is, and about our circumstances. Now let me just show you a passage related to this whole notion of preaching to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. Psalm 42 in your Bible. Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse 5. Here is someone who's listening to himself, and and the question is, why are you downcast, O my soul? You've been listening to yourself, and as a result, you are in despair, downcast, disturbed within yourself. But now notice who's being spoken to. The person is speaking to himself. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? So sometimes we joke, you know, so-and-so talks to his or herself. The Bible commends that. Talk to yourself. If you have to move your lips, move your lips. But talk truth to yourself and ask yourself, why downcast? Why disturbed? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. 
Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord, though, directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go on mourning, oppressed by my enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? But then again, notice, he reminds himself, despite all of that, why are you downcast? Why disturbed? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so back to page 23, that is why I say that for a Christian, a Christian allows his or herself to fall into despair, but a Christian does not have to do that. So whatever circumstance you've got going on right now that you've been brooding over all week or all month or for a year or years... You have to begin the discipline of speaking truth to yourself rather than listening to the lies that we often tell ourselves. But if we fail to do that, we can allow ourselves to fall into despair. And there are examples of that in the Bible, the sentiment middle of that paragraph. If if this is all there is, it would have been better never to have been born has been uttered by Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, Jonah, and Job. This lesson will look at a biblical view of suicide. And since many argue suicide is the ultimate personal decision, we'll discuss the government's role in enforcing morality on individuals, particularly in light of the doctrine of separation of church and state. So the Bible and suicide. Although the Bible never says, thou shalt not commit suicide, it does say, you shall not murder. And that would include self-murder, which is what suicide is. So the Bible most definitely condemns suicide. Now, how does suicide relate to the sovereignty of God? The fact that God is in control of all things and has authority and the right over all things that take place in his his world, which is the main point, as you see in the middle of page 23, whether we're talking about suicide or assisted suicide. Suicide, assisted or not, is an expression of despair and or an effort to wrest control out of God's hands. Now, let me say with regard to this issue of assisting uh, in, a, in a suicide or, or euthanasia and some of the related issues to that, like life, end-of-life decisions that many uh, have to face with uh, loved ones. And as a pastor, I get involved in those. You get called to the hospital, and uh, the loved one is in uh, critical condition. Uh, there appears to be no no hope uh, beyond uh, just a, a few days, a few hours. They're hooked up to machines, have been for a while. What, what do you do with that? And the rubric that uh, I use uh, and has been helpful to me is this, that the Bible requires us to do what we can to preserve life, but the Bible does not require us to prolong death. And when a person is simply being kept alive by extraordinary means and prolonging what would otherwise be their death, then the Bible has no requirement on us for that. And so I have counseled accordingly. In fact, some of you have been in in that situation as, as well. Preserving life by all reasonable means, but once someone is simply being uh, kept alive uh, uh, artificially, We are prolonging death, and that is where uh, I have practically drawn the line and tried to help folks in counseling with that. Further, 
let uh, the fact that God in his grace, common grace, has in our day given us things like hospice care to help people in the process of dying and to comfort them with that is a great gift of God's common grace. And I don't know if Carol is here. She was here in our first hour, but our very own Carol Crumpton is actually a leader, not that Carol, Carol Crumpton. I get away from a different Carol back there. Well, how many Carols do we have? <laughs> Hello, Carol. Carol Crumpton is a uh, she's a, a coordinator for hospice in Ann Arbor. And if you have any questions about anything related to that, she's an excellent, excellent source for that. So there's suicide in the sovereignty of God. Christians believe, middle of that paragraph, in the sovereignty of God, and that He is all wise and all powerful, and that life and death are best left in His care. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Job 14, since his days are determined, the number of his months is within you, God. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Not only is this best, but it's also right. It's an affront to God to take one's own life, both for reasons of sovereignty, but also because any murder is an attempt to annihilate his image in man. And God requires the strongest punishment for doing that. So when we looked... Uh, last week at capital punishment, we saw in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 that God says, whoever sheds man's blood will by man have his own blood shed because he has destroyed the image, one made in the image of God. And that's true even if we, if we do this to ourselves, it's an affront to God. Now, obviously, the punishment, the capital punishment, cannot be carried out on one who commits suicide, but God still takes it that seriously even if we seek to take our own lives. Page 24. What happens after death? I won't read all of these. You can read that on your own, but, and most of you are aware that the Bible teaches that when a person dies, he or she enters eternity. Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Philippians chapter 1, a little bit further down, the Apostle Paul who was facing a possible death sentence under Roman house arrest. He was awaiting the verdict from the emperor Nero. And he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm hard-pressed between the two, whether to live or to die. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful, needful for you. So eternity follows death for every human being. Whether or not they are believer or unbeliever, we will all spend eternity in one of two places, in heaven or in hell. Nothing else. No in-between. It's the act, bottom of page 24, of ultimate self-will. While you or I may not be able to imagine what could possibly be the reason for our remaining on earth, that decision is best left to God. This is one way that we can live in, in faith. We have the example of Job. He lost everything. His wife thought he should curse God and die. She was basically suggesting suicide. Although as mentioned above, he thought about it. He refused to give in to that despair. Does a person's autonomy give him or her the right to assisted suicide? Now notice, this is the, when we talk about assisted suicide, we're talking about actively putting someone to, to death, injecting them or the Jack Kevorkian assisted suicide. In 1 Corinthians 6, the Bible says we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, we do not have the absolute right to do whatever we wish with our own bodies. We must and can use them to honor God. 
And so, top of page 25, we have no right to involve another person in carrying out a so-called death, death wish, which is essentially a murder. Now, this is all a challenge for God's people. What can we do to prevent people from taking that drastic, irreversible step? One of the things that causes people to consider it is fear of being alone at the time of death. And certainly, we can help folks with that. You know, outside of the church, the gift of common grace that I mentioned in hospice is a great gift indeed. But the church can and should be involved in helping people know that you will not be left alone. One of the ministries that our church is seeking to align itself with is a ministry called Christ Care out of St. Louis. And Christ Care is a ministry devoted completely to the care of people in particular kinds of situations, including end-of-life situations, but also grieving. They have a sub-ministry called Grief Care. They have another ministry called Divorce Care for people who have gone through that, which can be almost like losing a, a loved one. And so it's the church making an attempt, and in this case our church, to help people with that issue of loneliness and the fear of being alone and thus entertaining the idea of taking one's own life. Middle of that paragraph, Christians are beginning to realize that we must come alongside people who are facing terminal illness, either being with them right until the end or by offering practical service to family members. Baptists for Life, you see that there? That is an organization out of Grand Rapids, and they have a ministry designed called Lift for just that very purpose. And to do that is a matter of doing what the Bible says, coming alongside someone in compassion to encourage them in their time of need. And that's what we say under true compassion. Now, this issue of dignity or grace, another fear that people have is the loss of dignity. But is it possible for a person to even lose dignity? You see, your dignity is innate as a human being made in the, the image of God. And that can never be taken or given away. Like compassion, dignity is best or perhaps only expressed in the face of suffering. The greater the suffering, the greater the occasion for dignity. Because as Paul found, we can glorify God in our suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God said to me, Paul, I'm not going to take this physical affliction that you have from you and under which you are suffering. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for my strength is made per perfect in weakness. Therefore... Most gladly, I will, rather, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Many people equate a loss of independence with a loss of dignity, but that's a Western invention. Christians grow as they minister to people who are vulnerable and dependent. Likewise, it requires a special grace to be the one helped. There's no shame in being served. Both experiences are needed in a person's life and in the life of the church as well. Now, I have several pages at the end here that are related to their quotes from a number of our founding fathers. And the reason that I have them there is this. Because once you understand what the Bible says about suicide being self-murder, suicide resting control from or attempting to wrest control from a sovereign God, that suicide is then condemned in the Bible, then the issue is, well, what do we do societally? What do we do uh, 
in terms of law. And that relates to imposing your morality on someone else. It relates to morality and government action. And what many people are convinced of is that it is outside our right to say that we believe this is moral and therefore this should be enacted into law, codified into law. But the founders never believed that. They understood what I said several weeks ago when we started this series, that all laws are someone's version of morality. Do you all remember that a few weeks ago? That every law we have is somebody's version of what they think is good and right. And so I gave, you know, what hopefully is a silly illustration about traffic laws and stop signs and the fact that the law says you've got to use your body to depress a brake at a certain time. If you have a Toyota, pray about it. <laughs> and you depress the brake and you hope the thing stops. But why do we care if it stops? Because we don't think people getting killed is, is good. We think it's bad. We think it's immoral. That's somebody's version of morality saying you've got to do this. You may think it's the Wild West. It's every man for himself, and if you're not quick enough to get out of my way, you deserve to die. But you don't get to do that. We've enacted a law that is imposed upon everybody, whether they agree with it or not. All law is somebody's version of morality. You say, well, traffic laws, everybody agrees with those. <laughs> Listen, I've been to India. Okay? They might agree with traffic laws if they had them. I've got video footage of me narrating from the front seat. And you have to be confident in your eternal destiny to do that. In fact, I even say on the thing, we may not make it to our destination, but I am saved. <laughs> and I have life insurance for the family. It's every man for himself. In third world countries, it's like that all over the place. Okay? We have more order. It's, in fact, that's my word for places like India. I've been to Mexico and India. They both have this in common, chaos. Chaos. But here we have this order. But we impose that order because we believe that it's moral to have restraints upon what people might do to take a life. It's that important to us. And so all law is the imposition of someone's morality on someone else. And the framers believe that. Let me just look at some of these quotes with you beginning on page 26. There's a ton of them here. I'm just going to read a few of them. John Adams, our second president, president, signer of the Declaration of Independence, it's religion and morality alone which can establish the principles upon which freedom can securely stand. The only foundation of a free constitution is pure virtue. He says, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Our Constitution is wholly inadequate to the government of any other kind of people. Now, that phrase is a chilling phrase, and you find it, if you'll read through these, you find it in a lot of the guys saying this, that our Constitution will really only work while we have a people who are inclined toward it, a virtuous people. Well, here's the problem. What is our populace like in 2010? I mean, just in my lifetime, there's been a sea change in the mores and the morality of our society. 
And our Constitution, these guys knew what they were talking about, will only work as long as you have people who willingly comply with its principles. Bottom of page 26, John Quincy Adams, that second quote, he says this, there are three points of doctrine, the belief of which forms the foundation of all morality. The first is the existence of God. The second is the immortality of the human soul. The third is a future state of rewards and punishments. Now, this guy was our sixth president. But he says you've got to have all three of those in order for you to codify laws that are going to be of benefit to the society and promote morality. Page 27. Charles Carroll, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Without morals, a republic cannot subsist any length of time. And therefore, who are decrying the Christian religion whose morality is so sublime and pure and which denounces against the wicked eternal misery and which ensured to the good eternal happiness are undermining the solid foundation of morals, the best security for the duration of free governments? A few more of these, if you'll turn to the next page. And, in fact, turn to page 29. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court said in 1824, no free government now exists in the world unless where Christianity is acknowledged and is the religion of the country. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, his second quotation there, we profess to be Republicans, and he doesn't mean uh, partisan, he just means that we believe in a free republic. We profess to be Republicans... And yet we neglect the only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican forms of government. That is, the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. For this divine book, above all others, favors that equality among mankind, that respect for just laws and those sober and frugal virtues which constitute the soul of republicanism. He says, by renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing from their moorings upon all moral subjects. It's only... It is the only correct map of the human heart that's ever been published. All systems of religion, morals, and governments not founded upon it, the Bible, must perish. And how consoling the thought, it will not only survive the wreck of these systems, but of the world itself and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Finally, uh, not quite finally, almost, page 30. George Washington, while just government protects all in their religious rights, true religion affords to government its surest support. He says, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism, who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of man and citizens. Two more on page 31. Noah Webster. The most perfect maxims and examples for regulating your social conduct and domestic economy, as well as the best rules for morality and religion, are to be found in the Bible. And last, Robert Winthrop, Speaker of the House of Representatives. Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the Word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or by the bayonet. That's a good quote. And so, this notion that because you're a Christian and you get your views of immortality, of death, of suicide, of God's laws against that and things like that, therefore have no right to see those things enacted into law is completely foreign to what the founders would have said. And yet, many Christians have been cowered into believing 
that because it comes from my religious views, it therefore has no place in law. Now, why? Why do so many people do that? This is my second to the last point I want to I make in our time together. The reason so many of us have been cowered into believing that is because of an erroneous notion called separation of church and state. Now, I say an erroneous notion. Uh, what's the erroneous notion and what's the correct notion of separation of church and state? The erroneous one is this. Separation of church and state means that religious principles cannot be included in any government function, including the codification of laws. Separation of church and state is so radical a separation that even religious principles, I believe in the immortality of the soul and therefore human life is sacred. If it's based upon, if it's based upon religious principles, it can't be included in, in government. That's the notion. But that's an erroneous notion. And why do I say it's erroneous? Because, one, separation of church and state does not appear in our Constitution. It's not a phrase that comes from our Constitution. What does appear in our Constitution is our First Amendment, which says this, Congress shall make no law with respect to an establishment of religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof. That's what it says. Now, it says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say a state shall make no law. Congress was the national government. It doesn't say a state shall make no law. And as a matter of fact, at the time the First Amendment was adopted, many of the first states, former colonies, actually had a state church. Did you know that? And this is where the notion of separation of church and state came from. Because one of those states that had a state church, namely the Anglican Church, the former Church of England, was Virginia. Thomas Jefferson, our third president, uh, had been governor of Virginia. He's now elected president, and he's got these pesky Baptists in Virginia from a town called Danbury, Virginia. And they wrote to the new president. And they said, we are concerned about the fact that we are Baptists living in a state, Virginia, that has a state church. And we're concerned about our own religious liberty. In response to that, Jefferson wrote a famous letter back to the Danbury Baptist in the year 1803. And in it, he assured them that they would be given full freedom to practice their religion in Virginia. And in giving them that guarantee, he cited a high wall of separation between church and state. High and impregnable is the way he put it. Now, what was he referring to when he talked about a wall of separation? A wall to protect religion from the government. Not the other way around. And yet today it's been stood on its head to say separation of church and state means if you're a religious type, you can't get involved. Your principles cannot be codified. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Now, have I made that clear? Absolute nonsense. Final point in our final few minutes together and the most important point that, I make, that I'll make. This issue of suicide, and as you consider suicide, from a biblical standpoint, perhaps 
affords no better opportunity to shine the light of the gospel, the good news of Christ. And here's why. Because as you think about suicide, ask yourself the question, can a person who commits suicide go to heaven? Our Roman Catholic friends would say no. I don't know if you know that. But Roman Catholicism says an unequivocal no. In Roman Catholicism, if you commit suicide, you do not go to purgatory, you go to hell. And the reason is you have committed a mortal sin. In Roman Catholicism, there are categories of sin, mortal and venial, big and little. Murder's big. You commit suicide, you've committed murder. And further, you have no opportunity, having killed yourself, to avail yourself of the means of grace to have that sin covered. What is the means of grace to have that sin covered? The Mass, a re-crucifixion of Jesus, to have his blood reapplied to the sins you committed since the last time you had your sins covered. But it's not just Roman Catholicism. I grew up in a church, a Protestant church, but a church nonetheless that believed that one could lose his salvation under certain conditions. That he could be somebody who had a relationship with God, but if he did certain things, he could lose his salvation. Suicide was one of those. We used to, every week when I was a kid at church, every single week, we used to have a time to walk the aisle and come forward to the altar. And we would pray at the altar. And I went dozens and dozens, perhaps hundreds of times as a kid over the years to the front of the church, to the altar, to place the sins that I committed the week before, quote, under the blood of Jesus. It's Roman Catholicism in Protestant language. We're not taking Mass, we're just going to the altar. But here's the deal I learned later. That a church really should not have a, quote, altar at the front. You know why? Because you know what you offer on an altar? And the Bible teaches the offering of sacrifice has been made. Once for all, on the cross of Jesus. So I joke sometimes, if God ever gives us a building, we won't have an altar. And if anybody gets married and they're, the bride or groom doesn't show up, you won't be left at the altar. <laughs> be left at the platform, you'll be left up front, but you won't be left at the altar. So there won't be one. But what does the Bible teach? Romans chapter 4, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You see, that's the pure grace of the good news of the gospel. That if I have come to Jesus, if I have truly come to Jesus, then his blood is applied to me one time. Past, present, and future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. And nothing that I do or is done to me can alter that eternal relationship. Now, friends, if you believe anything else then, you believe something other than the pure gospel of Christ. 
that all of our sins, even going into the future, have been covered by Jesus. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm delighted to be able to say that, and we're going to finish, but I'm delighted to be able to say that because some of you may be saying to yourself, I didn't know that. I didn't know that my sins, even going forward, are covered by Jesus. Do you have hope now? Do you have a confident expectation of the future now? Do you see why it is that Christians don't grieve as those who have no hope? Because I know my future, and even though this afternoon is uncertain to me, I know that my relationship with God through Christ is absolutely sure and certain, come what may. The question is, have you ever then come to him? And have you received the gift that he offers in Jesus Christ to cover every one of your sins? He offers that to you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift, gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. He offers that gift to you. So we're going to bow and pray. And when we do, if that's news to you, that your future sins are forgiven, that you're not on your own, that it's not how much you perform because you can't perform, even after you come to Christ and you don't perform by going to an altar and going to take mass or whatever form of works-based religion it is, you don't do that. You come to Jesus who has done it, it is finished, and you receive his completed work. If that's news to you, you can receive that gift now. So when we bow, you pray, you say, Lord, I realize this for the first time. I am a sinner indeed. And I believe now that you have covered my sins, past, present, and future. I ask you to apply that covering to me. Save me. And I want to follow you with my life. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time to look at this important issue, an issue that may have touched close to home in the lives of some dear ones here. I don't know, but you certainly know all. And we ask you to comfort their hearts and to, and to minister to them from the truth of your word. Lord, especially, we're delighted to be able to take these few moments to focus the, the light of truth upon this issue of how we can have a relationship with God and have a confident expectation, our, our sure hope that we have a relationship with you now and that relationship will be unending going into eternity. It's only because it is not based upon our performance, thanks be to God, but on what Jesus has performed, one time offering himself for the sins of all of us, every sin that we have committed or will commit. Thank you, Lord, for that assurance that motivates us not to sin. May it never be, says the great apostle, but it motivates us to live for the one who gave himself for us. And though I do so imperfectly, and though we do so imperfectly, we also do so with the absolute assurance that Jesus' blood has covered our sins. I pray that some are coming to you right now to receive that free gift so that they will know the joy of that salvation and no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. Go with us this week as we seek to serve you. Keep us safe, we ask. Bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.